Please be seated. Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting, let me, let me welcome you. We're, we're glad that you're here. Um, some of you have traveled further than others. I think I see Grant Jennifer Haynes back there, some of our missionaries that we support. What a surprise. Good to see you all. Thanks for being with us this morning. Maybe they're going to come up and give a missions moment that I didn't know about, but I, I don't think so. We are glad that you're here. You all come right at the end of a series on worship. We've been looking at worship all semester long, uh, and as we've done that each week, if you're just coming in, we, we've uh, taken each week a, an item from, from the order of worship of, of what we do in our common worship on a Sunday morning, and each Sunday we've, we've talked about that as a, uh, as a means to discuss what it means for us to be a people who really worship and are changed by worship. And this morning we come to the end of that series, just to give you a little preview of coming attractions. Starting next week, we're going to start about a six-week Christmas and Advent series from the first couple chapters of Luke, so that's coming up. And then in early January, we're going to be taking a look at the book of James for the course of most of the spring. Okay, let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll read our text. Our text this morning is Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. If you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 114. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning, as we always are, people in need of your word spoken into our lives, a word that is powerful and brings real change. So we pray that even this morning, you you would open our ears to that word and bring that change that you desire in us through the work of your spirit, by the power of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This portion of Scripture in Numbers chapter 6 uh, comes in the midst of a, of a lengthy uh, passage of, of God giving instruction to Moses about the worship and ordering of the common life of Israel as they are preparing to go into the promised land. And this particular section it has to do with the blessing that God tells Moses to give to his brother Aaron, the, the chief priest, the high priest of Israel, for Aaron and his sons perpetuity to give over, to pronounce over God's people. So Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Okay, so here we are at the end of this series on worship. And if you you recall early in the spring, the worship series began with us talking about the call to worship in which God invites us to come into his presence. He calls to us. God has the first word in our worship. He brings us into his presence. If you can imagine it this way, when you go over to have dinner, maybe it's going to be a Thanksgiving dinner for you this week, and you go over to the house of family or friends, or you're the host, what happens when people first come in the door? You, you take their coats, and you greet them, and you welcome them, you tell them how glad you are that they're there. That is what happens in the call to worship. And if it's been a, a good meal and a good night, a good time with friends and family, what happens is those people leave, and they're putting their jackets back on, and shaking hands and and giving them a hug and saying, thank you for coming. I'm better because you've been here. 
That's what happens in the benediction, those last words of departure, those last words that are spoken over us as God's congregation as we leave a worship service, those words which are to be ringing in our ears as we leave this room, get in our cars and leave this parking lot and go back into the rest of our lives for the rest of the week. Those are the words that God means for us to have echoing in our minds and our hearts. So here's what we're going to see from our passage this morning, Numbers and Benediction, a blessing. Okay, three things we're going to see about a blessing. We're going to see that we need it. We're going to see what it costs. And we're going to see how to live in it, this blessing that's offered to us. Okay, so first, that we need it. So we said this benediction, this blessing that's given in Numbers was given to Moses to give to Aaron so that it would be pronounced over God's people. And that's exactly what has happened uh, over God's people for 3,000 years now. First, as Aaron and, the, and his descendants after him would pronounce this blessing after every morning sacrifice as the worshipers left. This is the last thing they'd hear. And from the time of exile for the Israelites and the, and the rise of synagogue worship, this, these would be the last words that worshipers would hear as they left the synagogue every uh, Sabbath day. And it's been a part of the Christian church as well, really recovered, as, as many things were in the Reformation, when Martin Luther and others uh, brought the benediction back to a significant place right at the end of the service that, once again, God's people, week in and week in out, would hear his word, God's word of blessing, spoken over us. But, you know, we hear the word blessing or bless, and it's just not a word that we use very often in our vocabulary. I, I, I've been racking my brain. I've come up with three times in which, or ways in which we still hear blessing. Uh, you sneeze, and somebody says to you, God bless you. Now, as you know, that's code for, I'm really sorry you have that cold. Please don't give it to me. Uh, that's bless you. Or if you grew up in the South, as I did, then you grew up here in, your grandmother or someone say, you know, bless his heart when someone's just done something manifestly stupid. And it means, you know, that, that, that poor child, not the sharpest stick in the pile, but boy, we love him, right? <laughs> bless his heart. Or maybe if you grew up with some sort of church background, then, then this is a part of your religious vocabulary, and you, you've seen it in the religious section of, uh, you know, the Hallmark card store when you bought a card for somebody. And it means something like this vague wish of, I hope things go well for you somehow. But it's not a word that we use very often. And um, the concept, though, of blessing is one that is incredibly significant in the pages of Scripture. Uh, Ancient Near East, you know, for, uh, uh, for thousands of years, even leading up to Jesus, and as we see it in the Bible in particular, uh, in that cultural time, the idea of blessing was incredibly significant because blessings were understood to actually do something. Okay, they were words that had power. They didn't simply wish someone well, but they were seen to actually bring something, usher in the blessing that was being described. Uh, words had actual power. And throughout Scripture, this idea of blessing is central to what God is doing. And is one angle on looking at what all of the Bible is really about. Think about the first couple chapters of Genesis. What happens when God creates the world from the very beginning each day? What is he saying? He looks at the world and he sees that it is good, that it is good, that it is good. We see the word blessed for the first time in the first chapter of Genesis. After he creates all the birds that fly in the air and all the fish that live in the sea, it says that he blesses them. Then a few verses later, as he creates mankind, Adam and Eve, the crown of his creation, it says that 
the Lord God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God, even in the first chapter of Genesis, already in this incredible world that he creates, speaking blessing after blessing after blessing. Uh, he goes on, even uh, in the book of Genesis, Noah, after uh, God delivers Noah and his family from the flood, it says that God blesses Noah. Later, God calls out Abraham to be, uh, to be his treasured person and to start a whole race of people from him. And it says that God blessed Abraham, that he blessed Sarah. Eighty-seven times in Genesis alone, talks about God blessing or someone being blessed. The Psalms are full of blessing. Ninety-nine verses in Psalms speak of blessing. Listen to a few of these. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but the delight of the law of the Lord, on this he meditates day and night. Or Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And in Proverbs 16, whoever gives thought to the world, word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Proverbs 21, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Throughout the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, others, the list goes on of the importance of blessing in Scripture. And then you come into the New Testament, chapter 5 of uh, Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, and what are some of Jesus' most famous words? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, the merciful, and on and on. Words of blessing being spoken. Romans 4, 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And think about the last action of Jesus as he ascends to heaven after his resurrection. He is with his disciples. What's the last thing that he does? We, we see this in Luke 24. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And maybe with these very words that we have here from Numbers chapter 6, these words that would have been so familiar to his disciples, these words of blessing spoken over them. And think about the way Paul begins so many of his letters in the New Testament. Remember how he starts? Grace and peace to you. Grace to you. Lord, be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Grace and peace. On the lips of Paul as well, pronouncing benediction and blessing. Maybe we see sort of the thirst for this, our need for it, um, in, in some dramatic colors in the person of Jacob. Okay, if you know your list of, uh, you know, of God's work and, and the people in Genesis, you, you know the name Abraham. It's Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. And Jacob, maybe more than anyone else we see in Scripture, was a man driven by, thirsty for, consumed with the pursuit of blessing from day one. From, in fact, from before day one. You read in uh, Genesis 25, it talks about his mother, Rebecca. She is pregnant with these twins, Jacob and his brother Esau. And it, and it says, you know, even while pregnant, she could feel them wrestling in her womb. And she receives this word from the Lord that, uh, the, that God says to her, the older will serve the younger, which ends up being Jacob, uh, the, uh, who gains dominion over his younger brother, struggling for blessing. If you know the story of Jacob's life, time and again, he is the scoundrel. He's the conniving one. 
He's the shrewd one. Uh, there's this one scene where uh, Esau, the older brother, comes back from a day of hunting, and he's famished, and he comes to Jacob, and he says, give me some of what you're having for lunch. And Jacob says, sure, but in exchange, I want you to give me your birthright as the oldest son. And Esau foolishly says, it's worth it. Let me have your peanut butter and jelly. Give it to me. But seriously, for, for that, in that moment, trading away what is of infinite value for a meal. But there's Jacob taking advantage of every opportunity. Later, uh, Jacob, when it's nearing the death of uh, his father Isaac, Isaac intends to give his blessing as, a, as, his, as the father on his firstborn son. And Esau goes out to uh, catch some wild game for his father. And while he does, Jacob sneaks in. And he disguises himself as his brother. He prepares a meal, and before his older brother can return, he comes to his aged and blind father and says, It's me, Esau, and here is your meal. Let me have your blessing. And he deceives his father. And uh, Isaac gives to Jacob the blessing that was supposed to go to the firstborn son. Lying to his father, conniving against his brother. And after that, he flees because he's terrified of what his brother might do in response. He spends a good portion of his life on the run, terrified and exiled because of his insatiable search to grasp a blessing for himself. And then we come to a scene in Genesis 32 when Jacob is returning many years later. And listen to what he prays as he is anxiously... Uh, looking ahead to the next day when he is going to be reunited with this brother, this angry brother. Here's his prayer. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and the mothers and the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob says, you promised to bless me, are you going to? So in this, uh, one of the most interesting, strange scenes in all of Scripture, Genesis 32, Jacob sends his family uh, and his servants and everyone across the river in the night, and he's left there alone. Listen, listen to what it says. That same night he rose, took his wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel and said, for I have seen God's face to face, God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him and he passed Penuel limping because of his hip. 
So here you have Jacob, this proud, deceitful schemer, caught in the middle of the night in this strange wrestling match with this one wrestling all night long, unable to prevail, unable to, to get away until the sun begins to break. And Jacob holds on. He says, I will not let you go. And as the sun comes up and as he testifies afterwards, he says, I have seen God face to face and wrestled with him. And an interesting thing happens in that wrestling match. Maybe some of you remember growing up in your own families and, and wrestling with dad. Um, my, I had two siblings, and my dad would get home from work every night, and we would immediately pounce on him, and uh, totally oblivious to how exhausted he must have been after a day of work. I can sympathize a little bit better myself now. Uh, but then we would immediately start these wrestling matches, much as what happens in my own house now. And you know what it's like when you're wrestling with dad, and, and maybe it's especially for guys, I don't know, but eventually you get to this point where you're getting a little older and you start to wrestle and you think, you know, I've got dad now. I've got him right where I want him. And then uh, maybe you know that experience, remember that experience where dad lovingly reminds you of something and, it, and, and a brief half second later, you're, you're on your back and you're immobilized. You're fine, but you can't move. And you remember again, maybe I didn't have him after all. Uh, that's exactly what happens to Jacob after this night of wrestling. What happens? Very end, on the one hand, you've got God saying, let me go, but, but all along, all he has to do, and what he does at this moment is he reaches over and he just touches Jacob's hip, and he's crippled forever. And that, too, was a part of God's goodness and graciousness to Jacob. Jacob, you have been struggling for so long, so desperately seeking the blessing that I have promised you, that I have placed on you. And yet you are so busy seeking after this thing that I am giving you freely from my hand. And Jacob, you thought that you could obtain that blessing because of your strength. And so now I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to give you the gift of a reminder of your weakness. That you are going to walk away from this wrestling match with my blessing because I want to give it to you. But never again are you going to be able to think, it is because I am so strong but rather, I have a God who comes and has blessed me, even in my weakness. See, the Bible is preoccupied with blessing. It's this whole question of what is it? How am I going to get it? How am I going to obtain it? The Bible cares about it deeply, and so do you. So do I. Because we're people scrambling often for blessing ourselves. Every day, what is that thing? that you are so hungering for? What's the thing that gets you out of bed? What's the thing that is preoccupying your mind? What is the thing that keeps you awake at night? Now, you're used to me now telling you that those things are all wrong. Well, they're not exactly, right? Some of them might be. But, of course, we are a people with many needs. But our problem is often those many needs become ultimate needs, and they become the very center of our hunger. What are the things, what are the blessings that you are exhausting yourself searching for? Let me ask it this way. Do you even know where to look for the blessing that you most need? Look at what our passage here tells us about the blessing that we must have and that we so desperately need. The Lord bless you and keep you protect you, watch over you. 
The Lord make His face shine upon you. Did you know the warmth of His face turned towards you? Remember in Genesis, after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, sin, and fall, the next thing that happens, God comes and walks in the garden looking for them. And it says that Adam and Eve flee from God's presence. Same word, His face. They run from His shining face. Though they were made to enjoy it, though they will be restless until they have it, they flee from that very thing for which they are made. And this blessing says, may the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you, show you His grace given freely to you, not in response to your working, not in response to your effort, not in response to your moral list of all the things that you've gotten right. May He lift up His countenance, again, His face. May He turn it towards you. May He fix His gaze on you. May He attend to your ways always. May His eye never leave you. And may He give you peace. We've said often peace here. The Hebrew word is shalom, and it it means much more than simply the absence of conflict or some sort of vague good feelings. Peace is about relationship and life working the way it's meant to work, about things put back together, about relationships restored, about work that actually bears fruit, about child rearing that actually seems to turn out okay, about relationships with your family that are healed and whole. It says that is the blessing that we need. Sounds good, doesn't it? Okay, here's your next question. Because here's my next question. Is it really true? I mean, does God really promise us, in some sense, give us a blessing like that? Because maybe you've had a week, and you've certainly had periods of time, and we're all in the midst of it when it sure doesn't feel like that some days, does it? And that's maybe, if you've been coming to church for a long time, that's a question that is, it's gnawing at you, but you've been, off. some of you, scared to ask it. Because it feels like, well, if I just say that, does that mean I just have no faith? Well, as we say often, putting our faith in Christ does not require us to pretend about our lives. And instead, it pulls the blinders off and the masks off, and it actually frees us. The gospel frees you to ask the very deepest question of your heart without apology, because you have a Father who loves you and cares about you and cares about your questions. And one of those is, where are you? Where is this blessing so many times when it does not feel like this? Maybe it's not in your work. Maybe it's not in your family. Maybe it's not in your friendships. Where is God in times like this? The Bible itself wrestles with this question. And it's woven throughout the pages of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. We talked about the beginning of Genesis where this incredible blessing is spoken and all this hunger and promise of blessing all through the Old Testament. And often, especially in the Old Testament, that was in some way linked with some real material prosperity. God, when he blesses Abraham, he also made him rich. And it was one of the ways the people around him knew that he was blessed by God. And we we see other occasions of that in in the Old Testament especially. But even in the Old Testament, God's people were wrestling with this. Because every passage you have about Abraham or someone being made rich under the blessing of God, you also have the book of Job. Someone who is 
righteous in God's eyes, and everything is stripped away. Or you have all these psalms about God's blessing on his people, and at the same time you have, this, you have numerous psalms of lament where essentially the writer says, everything is going wrong. Why? God, I am looking to you. Where are you? I look around, and contrary to what you say, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Why? The Bible is unflinchingly honest about our real struggle with this. Because it brings us to this fundamental reality that we live in a world that is intertwined both with blessing and with curse. And that too goes right back to Genesis chapter 3. What happens into this world that's created for blessing? God's people turn away. God comes in and the curse is introduced. Things now don't work the way they are meant to as God's people have turned away from him. And now you have the central conflict and thrust of the whole storyline of the Bible. How is this going to resolve? Blessing and cursing intertwined. What is going to win in the end? The world started with blessing. Will it finish that way? And so we, even as God's people, we struggle in this very real world. God's blessing upon us in Christ, which means that we are brought into right relationship with God through Jesus that that can never be altered or changed, that that is real and solid, unshakable. But we also know as God's people that we don't see the fullness of that yet because we still live in this broken world and we still have broken lives and we follow a crucified Savior. If there was ever anyone who did not have an A to B relationship between righteousness and God's blessing, it was God's Son, Jesus who in fact experienced not the Father's blessing, but precisely the opposite. He, he receives the curse. Deuteronomy chapter 21, there's this one statement among many that says, Cursed is he who is hanged on a tree. And when a first century Jew read that passage in Deuteronomy, the image that came to their mind is, Cursed is he who is hanged on a Roman cross. That is the one from whom God has turned his face away. That is the one who experiences God's curse and not his blessing. What does God's blessing cost? It costs infinitely, but it doesn't cost us. It comes at a great price, but not one that we pay. If you want to know what God's blessing costs, look to the cross. Because Jesus takes our curse that we might have his blessing. Listen Listen to the words of, of, of uh, Numbers 6 here in light of Jesus. The Lord bless you and keep you, protect you. And Jesus saw the Father's protecting, caring hand withdrawn. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Jesus lost the gaze, the look of the Father, so that we might receive it. Jesus on the cross saying, not... Father, look to me, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken so that we would be found. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And there Jesus, the Prince of Peace, hanging unjustly on a cross, the hands of Roman authorities and his own people turning their back on him, receiving on his own head the sin of man and the wrath of God for us, for you. What blessing cost. 
And that's also for us the guarantee of blessing. Because where Jesus goes, we go. And Jesus went to the cross, but that was not the end of the story. He was raised again, and even now, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, our reigning King who is coming back for His people. The story is not over. And so what does it mean then for this blessing and this costly blessing? How do we live in it? Well, we saw that even in the Old Testament you have this this tension running through of, of both blessing and curse. And we see even more clearly it comes into even sharper focus in the New Testament that fundamentally our experience of God's blessing here and now is precisely this restored and reconciled relationship with our Father. That is the heart of God's blessing. That is the heart of his care for us. And of course, we want to and often do see that blessing pour out into so many different ways as relationships around us are actually healed and transformed. As God does graciously provide for our needs, as he does care for us, even in our hardest moments. But we say this in faith, knowing that the fullness of our blessing is still coming. We are not there yet. Maybe this story will help you us grab a hold of this a little bit more. Two people come into a restaurant, a fine restaurant, and both are seated at different tables. They don't, they don't know each other. They just happen to come in at the same time. Both are seated, and the waiter comes and eventually brings to each of them uh, a small plate of food. And both of these people eat that, uh, and find it just delicious and beautiful. Uh, but, but there was only a little bit of it, and, and, and frankly, they're, they're still hungry. And so the waiter comes back, and he, and he takes the plate from both of those tables. And they sit there, and before too long, one man uh, just grunts in disgust. The meager portions, kind of skimpy restaurant that I come to. And he stands up, and he storms out of the restaurant. And the other man continues to sit there in his seat, and, and, and presently the, the waiter comes back, uh, and he's carrying a bigger plate. He puts it down in front of him. The man takes his fork, and he takes a bite, and he says, I'm so thankful that I stayed for the main course. And, you know, we are people, as God's people, who even now... Uh, are tasting the appetizers of God's feast for us. And make no mistake, those are real nourishment. That really is God's blessing poured out on us. And it really does represent, as God comes into our life in the person of Jesus, it really does represent real, true, solid, healed relationship with the Father. But at the same time, these are four tastes of the fullness of this meal. And frankly, the main course is still coming. So for us now, as people waiting between courses, we can enjoy those bites of real and good food. We can delight in the many ways God showers his blessing on us even now. And when we sense again that, you know, somehow, though we found real food, we are still hungry, we can rest in faith and know there's a good reason for that. And the chef who has prepared this first part of the meal is preparing its fullness for us. And we will be fed fully and finally. And we can wait between courses because dinner is, in fact, coming.
So what's that going to mean for us as we walk out? We've said this word of benediction and blessing. It is to be the word that we, week in and week out as God's people, hear ringing in our ears. How are we going to live in that reality today? Because you're going to walk out of this room and you're going to drive home and you're going to go right back to struggles with your family, struggles with your friend, lost jobs, threatened jobs, retirements that have been cut in half and all kinds of things. How are we going to live in God's blessing today? Hear again God's words. Where is our blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Some of you are going to go home uh, this afternoon and you are lonely. You're lonely. How's God going to show up in that? May the Lord turn his face to you. May you know the shining of his face on you even this week. Some of us are afraid of many things. How's God going to show up in the middle of our fear? The Lord watch over you. The Lord watch over you. Some of us are sick and ill. Some of us are dying. I traveled a couple weeks ago to visit a friend who's in the final stages of cancer, and we talked about what's it going to be like 